Now, some of you may have picked up on, particularly if there's anyone particularly diligent who likes to read the reading in advance, might have noticed there's been a change. It was originally all the way through to chapter to verse 17, but as I was working on it, I thought, I can't feel like I can do justice to both parts of this and fit them into one reasonably length sermon. So we'll be looking just at verses 13 uh, to 17 next week. So we're going to come before the Lord in prayer because we need his help to work through his word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all that you are. Thank you that you created, that you made yourself known and you made way that we, by which we can be saved even when we turned our back against you. Lord, we pray that, we, that you might open our eyes, that we might see wondrous things in your word, that you might help us to be receptive, to hear the very things that you, that you designed for us to hear in this passage this morning. May we not only hear and learn, but may we be transformed by your word and by your spirit to be more like your son, we ask in his name. Amen. Confession time. Here's my confession of my biggest weakness and my biggest insecurity in ministry. This face. Not just because it's not particularly good looking and sometimes during COVID we had to do a whole lot of video stuff, but anyone who's known me realises that in a normal setting, my face is particularly unexpressive. And what you can imagine in, in a pastoral situation you deal with all sorts of conversations where they might be people's greatest joys and highs and I look like this. Or they might be sharing the most deepest, darkest hurts and I look like that. And if you've had those conversations with me, you've probably had a moment where I've just blurted out and say, sorry, I've just got to let you know, I'm not bored in what you're sharing, my face just looks like this. And people who know me uh, and have known me for a long period of time can vouch for the fact that When I'm doing something I love and I'm excited, I look like that. (laughs) But there are some situations where you just think, that's a wrong reaction. That's a wrong response. You can't look bored in those situations. And I think it's a fair statement to make that in all situations, in all circumstances, there is a right and a wrong way to react or to respond If the royal family were starting to get concerned last year that Sizzler looked like it might have been coming to an end and they've decided we've got to do a big family trip to Toowoomba to get some cheesy toast before it all comes to an end and finally they get there and I just happened to be there the same night and they bring out the cheesy toast to the Queen and just before it gets there, out of the way, Leslie, I take the cheesy toast. That's not quite an appropriate response in that situation. Or if I turned up this morning, drove into, into the driveway, rolled down my windows, flung out my keys to someone, kind of as they expected you to park my car, you might think, well, that's a bit out of place. Or when it comes to communion just after here, I don't, I don't actually have access to the bank accounts, but for the purpose of the illustration, pretend I've got access to the Eastgate's bank accounts and I can see what everyone's giving and I decide, no, nah, not you. A wrong response. I give these examples of right 
and wrong responses and reactions. Because as we look at this passage, we are going to see three different ways that people respond to Jesus, which are three different ways that people in any setting will respond to Jesus. And as we look at these 12 verses, we're going to look at what is mine, what is your biggest problem, and what is mine and your greatest need. We're going to look at three responses to Jesus. And as we wrap it up, we're going to ask the question is, what is your response? In comparison to the three that we're looking at, is one of those represent you now? Do you want to be something different than what it currently is? So firstly, what is our biggest problem, our greatest need? As we looked at the opening chapter of Mark, there were some big claims right in those opening verses about who Jesus was. He was the Saviour. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed King, the Son of God, the one who was God himself. The one whom John the Baptist, who was described as being the greatest of those born of a woman, he speaks of Jesus saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. He's the one who stands with and on behalf of sinners in his baptism and who will go to the cross to die for them. But they weren't just claims that Mark made about Jesus. When we worked our way through that first chapter, we saw they were very valid claims. If you're questioning, has he got the authority to, to back up these things that Mark is saying? In that first chapter, he's healed hundreds. He's cast out evil spirits from hundreds. People who have heard his teaching saying, we have never heard anyone teach with authority like that before. People who have seen his miracles, we've never seen anyone do anything like this, Jesus has done before. And as a result, he got a great deal of attention and popularity. Crowds would follow him wherever he went. But he pointed out his priority in verse 38 of chapter 1. He said to them, this is the time when everyone's looking for him because the crowds want him to do more healing. Jesus' response was, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, because that is why I came out. So he's got no problems grabbing a crowd. By the end of the first chapter, he'd healed a leper, someone who'd been disconnected from his own family because of his leprosy, disconnected from the community of God's children gathering together in, in the tabernacle, the synagogue, the temple. Jesus healed him, instantly taking away that isolation from family and community. But Jesus says not to tell anybody. Now, as you can imagine, someone who's received so much can't keep his mouth shut. But the result was that afterwards, Jesus could not enter a town freely because of all of the attention he got. Jesus found the crowds to be a hindrance to his mission, not a help. And so if your measure of a ministry success is the size of the crowd, Jesus says, I don't agree with you. 
Crowds are not a sign of success. But also, on the other hand, crowds does not mean necessarily that something is not successful or that it's unfaithful. But it's clear to say that crowds in and of themselves are not a measurement of faithfulness or success. So after Jesus is focusing on the thing that he came to do, to preach, travelling from town to town to preach, eventually he returns back home to Capernaum. And potentially the place where he's returning home to is the very same home we saw in chapter 1 where he'd healed Simon Peter's mother. And even in his own home, because of his reputation, because of the miracles, he can't escape the crowds. Even in his own homes, they are packed to every single wall, no room at the door. And regardless of what the motive of it was of the people who came to him, Jesus gave them what was primary to him, which was to preach. And now come verse 3 of chapter 2. There are four men who are bringing a paralytic on a stretcher in the hope that they might be able to bring him to Jesus. But they come to a house that's full. There's no room to get in at all, no pathway through to Jesus. It is packed, not even any room at the door. Now, you could be absolutely deterred by that. Think, man, we've walked so far, we've carried this guy. It's not easy to carry a guy in all this distance. You could think, maybe today's not our day. Maybe we should come back another time. But that's not the way these guys think. These guys immediately proceed with the paralytic, or what we might call today a paraplegic, onto the roof of the house. Now, as weird as that might sound to us, roofs and the use of roofs in that culture was very different than ours. It wasn't something shaped like this that had a TV antenna and bird poo and solar panels on it. It had a very minor incline, so rain could wash off. But there were steps to the roof because it was a room that was used, I suppose, to an extent like we would use a deck at our house. It was an outdoor place where you would sit, maybe to get fresh air. You may not have even had windows in your house. So it was common for it to be used and for people to go up there. But these guys are not up there to catch the views of Capernaum get some fresh air, get a tan. No, they start ripping apart at the roof. It's not even their house. We don't even know if they even know the people who own the house. Can you imagine that? I think presently the maximum number for COVID we're allowed to have in this room is 102. If the 103rd person was told they couldn't come in, they climb up on the roof and started ripping the roof apart, they're probably going to be calling on the cops. We're probably a bit concerned about our relationship with the Philharmonic Society. We, we rent this place and, man, their roofs are getting, getting absolutely wrecked. But nobody, at least in what is described, is concerned by it at all. No one's concerned by what's going on on the roof. No one seems to be concerned that they're lowering down a person through the roof in before Jesus who's in the middle of preaching a sermon. It's not happening now. It's good. In fact, nobody raises a concern at all until Jesus looks at that paralytic and declares, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, we'll look at the reaction of the scribes to that statement in a moment. But I think there's potentially another reaction that we might have that's not described here in this passage. Is that clearly the guys who are bringing this paraplegic thought it was absolutely urgent that they get this guy to Jesus. But in their mind, what do you think they would have perceived to be the urgent need? That he be healed, that he'd be able to walk. But what is Jesus' priority when he sees this man? Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's not the urgent need that probably the paraplegic or the people bringing him thought was the most immediate need. As far as we know, the paralytic didn't ask to have his sins forgiven or express anything of him being a sinner. To kind of put it into another context, imagine if my neighbour, Glenn, came around to our house, their car was getting fixed and and he's had to go pick up his wife from somewhere and he says, Steve, can I borrow your car? And my response is, Glenn, your sins are forgiven. Now, that's going to throw him. A, because he's like, what are you talking about? I came here to borrow your car. And secondly, he's like, who do you think you are to declare that my sins are forgiven? Now, it wasn't that Jesus misunderstood what this guy needed. The problem is that the paraplegic and the four who brought him misunderstood what his greatest need was. Now, when you think about your life, how it is right now at this moment, I don't know what you perceive to be your biggest problem. I don't know what you perceive to be your greatest need. But what I can say with absolute certainty is if at no point in your life you haven't repented of your sin, turned and placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled to him, your biggest problem is your sin that stands you under God's wrath. And your biggest need is the forgiveness of your sins to be reconciled to God. And I don't say that as a way of belittling all the other big things going on in our life, which may indeed be serious, but they are not and will never be our greatest needs. In fact, being forgiven, being reconciled to God, becoming a child of God, actually brings you into not only a great relationship with the Saviour, but it brings you a whole new perspective of this world in which we live in, which may actually help you to understand and deal with all the other mess that's going on around. I have no idea how many times I've spoken to people about a situation and said, how do you even cope with that without any sort of framework that has brings hope into that perspective? Like if you don't have a framework that thinks that we expect this world to be full of brokenness because sin has brought corruption and brokenness into the world and that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to make all of that right. But if all, all you can see is brokenness and there's no hope anywhere in that, I don't know what you do to deal with that. 
But I would encourage you thoroughly that if you haven't dealt with your sin, to turn from your living for yourself, turn to Christ, trust in him, walk with him. Do it today. Not because I asked you, but because it is your biggest problem and your greatest need. And because it brings glory to our wonderful saviour. But Jesus' care for this man did not end at the forgiveness of sins. When questioned about his claim to forgive this man's sins, Jesus asks a question. He says, well, what's easier to say? That your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and go home? Now note here, the question is not what's easiest to do, because the answer to the question of which one's harder to do, it's harder to, to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. There have been other people who have healed people other than, than God. The question was, what is easier to say? And the answer to that question, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't immediately verify whether or not that's taken place. But if you say to somebody who can't walk, get up and walk, and they don't move, then that's instantly verifiable. And so here they are, they've seen the man immediately stands up, takes his bed, and he walks. Now, I've had a broken leg before. You're in plaster for six weeks. When they take that plaster off, you need physio and rehab. Just because you haven't used those muscles just for six weeks, and this guy was probably paralysed for a long time, maybe even for life. If you haven't used those muscles just for six weeks, they're not strong enough to get up and do those things. Yet this guy didn't need to go into rehab. He didn't like limp off and then he got sent off to physio appointments for the next six weeks. Immediately he got up, he walked and he went home. And everyone was there. They were amazed. Said we've never seen anything like this before. This Jesus, he just says, get up and walk. And he got up and walked. They're probably questioning. He also said, son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe he could do that too. Now we need to cut the people a little bit of slack. There was a lot to take in. It's really easy for us to read and think, oh, if I was there, I would have been so much different. I mean, only God forgives sins. That's one thing they've got to deal with and he's... Jesus, this guy they've seen walking amongst them for some time, forgiving sins. If you were a first century Jew, where would you go to deal with your sins? You would go to the temple, you would perform a sacrifice. Yet Jesus says, son, your sins, plural, past, present, future, are forgiven. And in that statement, Jesus is saying that he is on equal authority with God and he is saying that he is greater than the temple, that you would regularly go back to time and time again to do more and more sacrifices for each and every sin he did. Jesus specifically states in Matthew 12 that he is greater than the temple. 
that he's the fulfillment, the very thing for which the picture of the temple was pointing us to. So it's a massive event. It says a lot about who Jesus is. But also when we see the three different reactions to Jesus, it reveals much about the people. So let's take a look at those three different responses or reactions to Jesus. All three of these people groups see the exact same events, the exact same actions, the exact same statements, the exact same claims. But each of them come to different conclusions and therefore different responses to the same person of Jesus, the same actions and same claims. So firstly, we're going to look at the scribes. Just to give you a little bit of a recap, the scribes were also referred to often as being the experts in the law. They're not just people who copy manuscripts from one to another. They were the ones who did all of the studies. If you wanted to ask someone for an answer what the part of the scriptures meant, you would ask them. They would have the most authoritative, definitive answer. In the modern age, they would be the guys with their PhDs from theological college. They were the most qualified. They were the most religious that could be there in that setting. Yet in the Gospel of Mark, and most of the Gospels, to be honest, more often than not, when we see them interacting with Jesus, they are opposed to Jesus and his mission, one exception being in Mark chapter 12. And here when Jesus pronounces this man, your sins, plural, are forgiven, they are ropeable. These are the guys, the experts in the scriptures. They've read the scriptures. They know only God can forgive. Who is this guy I think he is? If he's going to claim that he can forgive sins, he's a blasphemer. The problem isn't their interpretation of the scriptures, sort of. Isaiah 43, verse 25, the Lord is speaking. He says, I am he, singular, the one who blots out your transgressions. When David sins and has his affair with Bathsheba and he writes that famous psalm in Psalm 51 verse 4, he recognises as my against you and against you alone have I sinned. So the scribes got it half right, which is not a pass mark for the record. They got it right that anyone other than God claiming to forgive sins is a blasphemer wasn't so much they interpreted scripture incorrectly but they did interpret Jesus incorrectly they didn't rightly recognize who he was because if Jesus is the one who Mark has introduced as the one who is fully God the son of God the Messiah the Christ the anointed king it isn't blasphemy for him to claim to forgive sins it is to be expected there was another occasion when Jesus had healed a paralytic in John chapter 5. And again, he has similar opposition. And Jesus responds to those Jewish leaders by saying, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. To a people whose lives were devoted to studying the scriptures, he says, how is it you can spend all the time reading the scriptures and not see that it's all about me, it's all pointing to me. And if you don't see that, he says, you don't even get it at all. 
You don't understand it. You don't rightly apply it. Imagine that. Devoting all your time to studying something only to be told you haven't even got a clue about the main thrust of what it's about. They were so bound by what they thought was right, by what they'd been taught, that when something came along that didn't fit the mould, they're just not listening. Can't be done. That even when the most central truth focus of the scriptures they study was before their eyes, they denied and rejected it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the sum and centre of the Bible. He is the lens through which you rightly understand and interpret all of it. You don't get him right, you don't get that focus right, you won't understand the scriptures correctly. So if your understanding of the Bible doesn't fit with something Jesus did or Jesus said, it's not Jesus that needs to change, it's your interpretation of the scripture that needs to change. Don't be like the scribes. Let Jesus correct your faulty interpretation. So the first and wrong response is rejecting Jesus because he doesn't fit your expectations. Second response is from the crowds. Now, mostly so far in the Gospel of Mark, the crowds have been positive towards Jesus. They've been excited. They've been amazed. They've been flocking around him. They want more and more. If crowds was your measure of success, you'd say, Jesus, you are the man. You don't even need to put out billboards. You you go somewhere, people follow you, they turn up, they want to see you. But we see that Jesus saw the crowds more often as a hindrance to his mission than it were a help. Now I'm sure there are times when crowds flocked around and Jesus did what was primary to him to, to preach and people were transformed by the things that he taught. But despite the fact that we see him so regularly surrounded by massive crowds, how many disciples do we have at this point? Four. Now, if you're the sort of person who wants to gauge ministry by terms of statistics, you might say that's not particularly impressive to have all these big crowds but four committed, faithful followers. And it's not even a case of four faithful, committed followers and a whole pile of crowds are opposing him. The crowds like him. He's popular. They're amazed. They're astonished. Never heard anyone teach like him before, never seen anyone do anything like him before. There's been a few who've been opposed, but on the whole you could say the crowds were impressed with Jesus. If you're an onlooker, you'd say, Jesus has got a massive following. Because visibly, all you can see is a large group of people impressed with Jesus. You can't see the hearts, you can't see the motives. But the text seems to make a distinction between the committed disciples and those who had a shallow or fickle amazement or excitement about Jesus and what he could do. These crowds of excited people, they were amongst the committed and the faithful. They love what Jesus did. But there's nothing to indicate that they had committed themselves to Jesus and his mission. 
And it would be true of churches everywhere around the world that in any church gathering, there'll be a mixture of those who are faithful and committed and those who are there just because there's something about Jesus that impresses them, excites them, fascinates them. I'm certainly not going to go to the four crowd scenario. Don't take, push the illustration that far. You have people who will be coming along to church. I'm here because I want Jesus to fix my problems. I want a better life. But what we see of Jesus even already in Mark is that his primary mission is not about making people's lives easier or better. Sure, he's healed lots, cast out demons. But his primary focus, as it was with this paralytic, is to deal with the problem of people's sins, of being them being reconciled to God. And so naturally all of us should examine ourselves. Where do I fit? Am I just someone who's in the crowd? I like this whole Jesus business. I like what he does. I like what he can do for me. Or am I a committed, faithful disciple? We don't want to just have a shallow excitement about Jesus. It's not what I want. It's not what Eastgate wants. It's not what Jesus wants. He wants committed disciples, not a crowd of fascinated onlookers. And the third example is the paraplegic and his friends. Now these guys impress me. And you get the impression they made quite the impression on Jesus as well. But there was one part, and I was saying this to to Colin beforehand, that this is one bit where I wish there were far more details given. Tell me more about these people. What were their motives? What were they thinking? Because at first they seem no different to the rest of the crowds. Oh, here's just another group of people who know that Jesus is a healer, bringing someone to be healed. But Jesus sees something about these guys that he sees as not the same as all of his other healings. We read in verses 4 and 5, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they made an opening, they let him down on the bed which the paralytic lay, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw something about their faith that made him act towards this situation. Now this is where I want details. It says Jesus saw their faith. Who's the there? Is it the four who carried him? Is it the paralytic? Is Is it all of them? Or five of them? And secondly, what's the content of the faith that he saw? Did he see a faith that believed that Jesus could heal him? Did he he see a faith that they thought that he was going to heal him right there and then? Did they see a faith that he would forgive this guy of his sins? We don't know. It doesn't say, and I'm not going to make up my mind and guess. Now, in the Gospels, there often is a connection between faith and healing should be noted that sometimes there is a connection, sometimes there isn't. In John's Gospel, all of the healings that take place, none of them are specifically stated to be done in the context of faith. So you need to be careful to make broad assertions. You don't want to make a broad assertion to say that if I have enough faith, 
then that'll force Jesus to act to heal someone. Oh, God's will is what will determine whether or not he heals someone, not how much faith you have. Nor should it be said on the opposite end of the spectrum that if someone is not healed, that the problem must be necessarily their lack of faith. But what we're seeing in these four guys and the paralytic, there is an urgency to get to Jesus. There's no way they're turning around saying, let's come back another time. They say, we must see Jesus, we must see him now, and we don't care if we're going in through the roof. They didn't have any concern about the inconvenience they were caused. They didn't seem to have any concern about their reputation. They're thinking, man, you guys are ripping apart the roof. Like, we must get to Jesus. And that's what I love about them. They didn't care about reputation. They didn't care about what people thought. They just wanted to be with Jesus. We should all want a desperation for Jesus that doesn't care what other people think about us. That doesn't care if people look at our life and think, that doesn't look wise, I wouldn't do that. Or people smirk and make jokes about our commitment to Jesus. Get funny looks. Rather we be like a bride with a wedgie, walking down that aisle, having no idea of all the smirks of everybody else because their eyes are on one man who's standing up the front that they're going to commit to for the, all of the days of their life. So what's your response to Jesus? Well, we've seen a couple of things. We've seen his priority and his authority, and we've seen three responses. We've seen that our greatest need, our biggest problem, is for our sins to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God. It's also the greatest need and biggest problem for every single person that we walk past in this world. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, speaking into this problem is part of your mission, is part of your identity. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 to 21, says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Can we have the next screen? It's not working for me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. For we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we often get nervous about talking to people about this, even though we know it's their biggest need, their biggest problem. But you know what God says in verse 20? He says, I, God, will make my appeal through you. It's not your, your ability to explain things. It's not your how convincing you are. It says, God makes his appeal through you. And if you feel like all of this talk of being reconciled to God actually might be your biggest need, perhaps it would be because it is God making his appeal 
through this message this morning. And maybe you'd like to talk to me or someone else about that. But we've also seen three responses. Three responses that could be found in any churches anywhere in the world. And which one are we? There was like a religious legalist who thought that they knew the scriptures so well, they were so rigid in what they believed that when Jesus came along and didn't fit their mould, he just wrote him off completely. The second group were the crowds who were amazed at Jesus, loved all the things he could do, maybe he could do for them, but unwilling to commit to following him, living for him as your king. Well, third and lastly, we saw the guys and the paralytic who were fixated on Jesus. I must get to him at all cost. I don't care what it does for my reputation. I don't care what people think. I don't care if people are laughing at me. Eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Eyes on the prize because nothing matters more. Not our reputation not our moving up in this world, but to know him and be known by him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can know you and be known by you. We don't want to just know about you, we want to know you. We thank you that you desire to be known that you, you invite us into this rich fellowship with you, union with Christ. When we turn from our sin and place our trust in Jesus' completed work on the cross and his resurrection. Lord, as we have been looking at, at Jesus this morning and over many weeks, we pray that we might see him clearly. And as a people who are being called to be conformed into his, his image, that we might be challenged by the things that we read and see and hear, and we, that we might be willing subjects, ready and willing to be formed to be more like him. We thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to move to a time of communion.